0: Welcome to episode number 571 of this here electronic engineering podcast called Amelia's Weekly Fish Fry. Brought to you by eejournal.com and written, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Amelia Dalton. My guest today is Ken Krubb from Elma Electronic. Ken and I are investigating the past, present, and future of modern edge computing, the trends pushing a need for a transformation in information delivery, how SOSA can be used to implement edge compute and AI capabilities, and one of my favorite topics quantum computing. Also this week, I investigate a new research study that may have unlocked the mystery of how gravity and quantum mechanics work together. So, without further ado, please welcome Ken to Fish Fry. Hi Ken, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Oh, great to be here. Good to see you again. (laughs)
0: It's great to see you as well. Okay, so we're talking about solving the unsolvable and how technology acceleration is transforming information delivery for new capabilities. But first, Ken, what kind of trends are you seeing pushing this transformation in information delivery?
1: So it's a really great question. I mean, what we're seeing is on multiple fronts, technology that are changing, that are helping this occur. First thing might be in the network space where we see actual network capability moving up to 100 gig. When we're talking about OpenVPX, what we can see around that is speeds that are gonna be much higher than that. But for our realm, right at the moment, 100 gig, which is new. So this gives us a new capability from the network side. The other trend that we're seeing is how quickly AI devices, or let's say GPGPUs, that are capable of running AI applications are coming to market. It used to take quite a long time for that to occur, but now we're seeing chip down solutions and solutions that are scalable, that have really high core counts. We're seeing a way to deal with power and to keep it kind of under the uh, within grip so that you can still contain it in a platform. And we're also seeing the option to use more than one platform implementation. For instance, we may be putting that on OpenBPX. It is possible to put these things on XMC's. Or we could be looking at it as the SOM, as we talked about a little bit, where you've got a lower power instance of it, and also you have some intelligence on that card that helps with the interface of the GPGPU. So all of those things give us a bunch of options in the toolkit to affect a solution that implements AI. So now, with AI available, we can look at ways that we can take AI applications and move them to those devices very quickly. And we never thought it would be actually possible to do it quite as quickly as we're able to do it. And also face it to the network to get data in and out of the system.
0: So first, Ken, talk to me about the modern edge computing ecosystem.
1: Well, that's another interesting thing. It's very large and there are many participants in it. So again, we kind of looked at, let's look at it from a central model and rotate around that axis between industrial and commercial activities. And in that space, you still have similar chips, be it an Intel device or a GPGPU device, but you also have people that are organizations that drive scale around those solutions and drive price out of them. So on the commercial side of that you still need a level of ruggedization but there's many choices for the ruggedization be it a carrier be it other modules and other standards for let's say mezzanine based implementation. So there's quite a few tools in the box on that side. And then you look at a greater market space for it, where it's being driven by say, Taiwan or other areas where cost is driven out, And you end up with a number of ways to develop that edge solution for a price point that, that is really tailored to some of the applications that were on the chart, which are more commercial-oriented or industrial-oriented. What comes along with that is ruggedization, though, as you go into something like mining, or some other rugged environment like a tractor where you do need to deal with shock and vibe and then maybe you're into a crossover proposition If we translate around the axis and then we look at the military side then we're back to this more familiar space for us where we know we need rock solid ruggedization because it's going to be required but we still have the thermal propositions to deal with we've got speeds and feeds to deal with because of the network but now what we see ourselves being able to do is come up with an edge device that's dealing with multiple protocols, be it Wi-Fi, Bluetooth to the back end, and we're looking in the forward space, we're looking at connections to the network to 5G, or maybe other types of connections. Maybe when you think about a radio or Manet or Cisco, those types of things, that edge device ends up revolving around those technologies. So that's really the modern space and there's quite a few players and component players in it to implement the edge device and the edge device although it sounds trivial it's not trivial to build it's highly integrated it usually wants to be everything it can be and come along with all the let's see the least power that it can be at the same time
0: so ken how do you see edge computing evolving
1: so I think to answer that, we've had in our company, uh, my colleague Mark Littlefield's been out looking for applications that may have a little bit higher value proposition, but also sensing demand, and the demand is high. We also see in our space, our customers thinking about the edge proposition in several ways, in dismounted, meaning it's off vehicle, and then mounted where it's on vehicle or both, meaning it might be on the vehicle for this moment, and then you might be taking it off vehicle for a good reason, putting it somewhere else. So when you start thinking about that, no one is really resting on their laurels, saying, um, I might get to an application where I need an edge device in a couple of years. They're saying, I've got about six, seven, eight, nine, maybe 10 applications that we can think of that we may need in the next 18 months. So, then they're trying to figure out how that can be realized, because the way that the world is going is creating this demand for applications that would be on-platform, off-platform, wearable. And that just seems to be picking up as far as the acceleration for the creation of those applications that manifest themselves towards this edge computing device.
0: So let's also talk about SOSA. How can SOSA be used to implement edge compute and AI capabilities?
1: One thing I think that SOSA has done well, and and they've done many things well, but in this case, the work that's gone into defining the profiles has been sufficient enough to allow market and the suppliers in the marketplace and then the suppliers all the way up to really the drivers of the technology, and NVIDIA in this case, be able to make AI devices like GPGPUs and sufficiently sophisticated AI devices that are scalable. So it's possible to make a GPGPU solution where you're using one and then face it against a single board computer that could be ten cores or it could be twenty cores. And these are available. You can also scale this. Because the way that these things have been architected, you can actually have one processor drive in that technology in OpenVue you know, drive up the four GPGPUs off of one head, or let's say one front end processor on that. This is interesting because that scalability may not always be necessary, but it provides for growth. And if you do need it, you can do it. You can also step and repeat. So pairs, you could step and repeat in the backplane multiple times. This gives you other capability. And then because of the way the network infrastructure is set up for data and control, the switches are there to be able to interconnect that stuff up at 100 gig and be able to get the data plumbed around the system. So it's fairly aligned to be able to do that.
0: We also need to discuss quantum computing, right? There are some incredibly cool movements in the quantum computing arena recently.
1: Yes. So if you look at about a year ago, IBM had, or let's say over a year ago, IBM had their first quantum summit. That's the first time they did that in an organized way. So we've been somewhat aware of it at that time and looked at it and said, geez, that looks pretty interesting. I wonder what's going on over there. Well, lo and behold we move through the year and then we start looking for topic and looking for trend uh, towards the end of the year and what we find is that IBM has made some just incredible announcements about their progress to when you see that pop up in the news and then you you connect a few dots together, you realize that it's everything that IBM's brought to the table, plus some other nifty things that are coming up right around it. And you're saying, hey man, I gotta stop and take a look at that and really, really see, are we really, as an industry on the quantum side, is the world really moving along that quickly? And is it something now that we have to pay much more attention to than potentially we did before? And I think today, as we talked about it, it is the case. And what I'm finding and just talking to a few people after the presentation that others are saying, you know, I really didn't understand because the last time I looked or I never really realized that it would be manifested in a way that it actually could become practical. Or that because we're entering this so-called utility phase, then we're in a position where we can actually start learning and actually start trying. And that's pretty big. I mean, you think about how ChatGP came on the scene, kind of caught everybody by surprise, and then it was made very easily to access. And then lots of questions started coming out after that, but also like, hey, wow, this thing can do a few things, and it's pretty neat. So I kind of think that we're sort of in that space now with quantum computing. There's always been tons of work in the background going on, and it's so intense relative to all the research and work that had to go on worldwide to get here. But it's really interesting to see it be cast in a way where it actually can become implementable. And to my attachment where I started my career was with IBM. I have a bit of a familiarity of way that they execute a roadmap and what that means when they're doing that. And I just was amazed. I was like,
0: yes, (laughs) let's go for it. Yes. So Ken, why do you think quantum computing is so compelling?
1: I think one of the hardest things with quantum computing, just in my short look and in some work in the past, is that this compute modality is completely different. It's not von Neumann, it's not linear, but brute force. It's not what computing's been since the inception at Moore's Law in the beginning, and that starts back in 1949 with the transistor being invented, and then gates getting cobbled together, and then on and on and on and on as we went through the, the semiconductor scaling process and the inflection points taking place over the years. So when we listen to the experts speak about it, it's known that it's so fundamentally different that it's gonna take some time for people to understand how different it is. And then there's a whole set of corollaries and I think corollaries, corollaries are being put in place to help nurture us to transition to the new methodology. For instance, an example is, in classical computing, as the way that IBM is explaining it, you'd have a regular compiler. Well, when you move into the quantum side of things, the compiler will be called a transpiler. So it's given a new name to help you move to the new concept, but then one will need to appreciate what the difference is as you move over onto the other side. The other interesting thing I think they're doing is, they're giving us this, what may be a soft landing. When you think with QuizKit, QuizKit being open as I understand it, but QuizKit brokering the transition from a classical algorithm that's implemented in coding techniques that we use daily now, but being able to translate it and submit it to the quantum computer for processing. I have no idea how this magic is happening in between, but it's, a, it's beautiful magic because even though potentially it's not totally optimized, it gives you a way to start working that early and you don't have to have a lot of experience. So you can begin to learn and then get maybe better at that. And then I think as you learn technique, you may be able to submit it in a different way. So I think this is this is really something. It's a great way for these hybrid workflows to be put in place and at the same time to allow The communities that are going to be researching these things and want to have access to this to step up to to actually get this job done
0: all right ken it is time for your off the cuff now tell me more about this pickleball marathon you did earlier this summer
1: well somehow somebody got the idea that we should all learn how to play pickleball so we did We actually took some lessons and we found out what a gas this was and we got the family together and what was great about it is we could have the parents play it, we could have the kids play it, we could get some really raucous competition going on and try and minimize injuries which didn't always happen. (laughs) So what we did learn is there's a really good reason to buy a good pair of sneakers, (laughs) more so than we thought.
0: I love it. That sounds like a great time. Well, Ken, it is always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having us.
0: Speaking of solving the unsolvable, recently researchers have successfully detected a weak gravitational pull on a tiny particle using a new technique that uses levitating magnets to detect gravity on microscopic particles, and yes, on particles small enough to border on the quantum realm. And this new experiment could pave the way to finding the elusive quantum gravity theory. Lead author of the associated research paper published recently in the journal Science Advances, Tim Fuchs, from the University of Southampton, explains the magnitude of this new research like this. For a century, scientists have tried and failed to understand how gravity and quantum mechanics work together. Now we have successfully measured gravitational signals at the smallest mass ever recorded. It means we are one step closer to finally realizing how it works in tandem. In this study, with funding from the EU Horizon Europe EIC Pathfinder grant. This team, which included academics from Southampton, scientists at Leiden University in the Netherlands, and the Institute for Photonics and Nanotechnologies in Italy, used a setup that included superconducting devices, known as traps, with magnetic fields sensitive detectors, and advanced vibration isolation. And what did they find? They measured a gravitational pull that was weak, just 30 newtons, on a tiny particle that was only 0.43 milligrams in size. And they found this by levitating it in freezing temperatures, a hundredth of a degree above absolute zero, about minus 273 degrees Celsius. So where do we go from here? Even smaller, of course, Professor of Physics Hendrik Gilbricht at the University of Southampton says this about the future of these experiments. We are pushing the boundaries of science that could lead to new discoveries about gravity and the quantum world. Our new technique that uses extremely cold temperatures and devices to isolate vibration of the particle will likely prove the way forward for measuring quantum gravity. Unraveling these mysteries will help us unlock more secrets about the universe's very fabric from the tiniest particles to the grandest cosmic structures. Tim Fuchs from the University of Southampton also says this about the ramifications of this research he says from here we will start scaling the source down using this technique until we reach the quantum world on both sides by understanding quantum gravity we could solve some of the mysteries of the universe like how it began what happens inside black holes, or uniting all forces into one big theory. Super cool, right? So if you want even more information about this study or Elma Electronic or SOSA, I've included a bunch of links below the player on this week's fish frying page on eejournal.com. Hey, have you checked out EE e. Journal on social media yet? Well, you should. You can find us at facebook.com slash EE Journal. If you're into X, you can monitor our tweets at EE e. Journal TFM. And don't forget, if you would like to follow my personal account, check out Amelia D 1978. And hey, if LinkedIn is more your thing, I dig it. You can follow us or me on LinkedIn as well. And we are now on Blue Sky Social and Mastodon too. And we have a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash eejournal. Folks, it is chock full of all kinds of techie videos, including our very popular Chalk Talk webcast series hosted by me. And, of course, you can subscribe to our EE Journal YouTube channel as well. Also, make sure you subscribe to this here podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or just about any other podcasting platform to listen to some exciting upcoming episodes. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you know of any cool new technology or heck, you just want to chat shoot me a line at Amelia, that's A-M-E-L-I-A, at eejournal.com, or post a comment on our forums on eejournal. For the week of March 1st, 2024, I'm Amelia Dalton, and you've been fried.